Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily non for Tuesday, December 19th, 2023. I'm your reader, Scott Spoivik. Here's our first story. It's entitled, Church Splits with Methodists. Church Change in Beliefs Prompts Decision to Separate Church. It's written by David Golbitz of the non Nearly 150 Methodist, United Methodist Church congregations in Iowa, including one in Council Bluffs, have voted to disaffiliate themselves over changes to the church's guiding text. Congregants of the Fifth Avenue Community Church, formerly known as the Fifth Avenue United Methodist Church, declined to specify which specific changes they objected to. However, for years, the church has confronted debates about its theology, same-sex marriage, and LGBTQ plus clergy in the church, culminating in 2022 when the United Methodist Church directed churches and pastors to follow their conscience as it pertains to the Book of Discipline, which outlines beliefs, standards, and canon laws for the faith. Rule changes now allow gay clergy to serve and permit ministers to have same-sex marriages, which has led to more than 5,600 Methodist churches to disaffiliate in 2023. Fifth Avenue member Bob Feinhold said that churches are disaffiliating because United Methodist Church leadership is being swayed by outside forces. The split now is because the Methodist Church is being influenced by special interest groups, by international groups, Feinhold told the nonpareil. The International Methodist Church is influencing the decisions on the federal level, and they're making changes that are to the traditional Methodist beliefs, and we don't agree with the changes that they wanted to make. Members of Fifth Avenue have had many disagreements with the church over the years about some of the guidance they receive from the Bible or the Book of Discipline. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and it should be followed, said Congregant Bill Newman. I mean, not to the point that you ignore, okay, the scripture was written because of what was going on at the time, and that has nothing to do with today. I mean, I don't get that crazy. There are churches that believe that, like wearing jewelry or how you braid your hair or anything like that, well, that had to do with, you know, back in ancient times and what was going on, Newman continued. It has nothing to do with today, but some churches still have a feeling about that. One scripture that I always think about is, women be silent in the church. Well, if women were silent in the church and weren't involved in doing things in the church, not too many churches would survive. Feinhold pointed to the Book of Discipline's guidance on giving communion as an example of micromanaging that he didn't agree with. The sacraments have to be blessed by an elder in the church if you don't have your own pastor, Feinhold said. We had a situation a few years back where we didn't have a pastor right at the time. We had guest speakers coming in and guest pastors and retired pastors. They can't bless the sacraments. Sacraments have to be blessed by a current elder in the church. Well, there was only one elder in Council Bluffs, and he didn't agree with that philosophy, so we wouldn't do it even though it's in the Book of Discipline. With no one able to bless the sacrament, congregants could still offer it, but weren't allowed to call it communion. And it has to be specifically different than their communion service, and that's in the Book of Discipline too. You can't do this, you can't do that, Feinhold said. The Book of Discipline also has rules about taking communion to those who are physically unable to attend a service. Taking communion to a shut-in has to be done the same day, and only one of the elders in the church or one of the pastors is the only one that can actually do it unless an elder approves, Newman said. 
It gets so involved. Feinhold explained that, after disaffiliating from United Methodist, the Fifth Avenue congregation has been able to come up with its own rules on things like communion and other parts of their service. We believe that communion, the sacraments, can be blessed by whoever's leading the service, Feinhold said, and if we have a person, a board member, we have a board member that visits the shut-ins and everything, there's no reason she can't take communion to the shut-ins. This is crazy. I mean, this is just doesn't make any sense. Fifth Avenue could have left United Methodist at any time, but it wasn't until 2019 in the addition of paragraph 2553 to the Book of Discipline that the church would allow a congregation to disaffiliate and still retain its property and financial assets. That's the key right there, because we could have gotten out it any time in the past, but we would have given up all of our assets, Debbie Wymore said. Our buildings, our finances, the monies that we had, the bank that had been donated to us, we would have given all of that to the conference. And when this came up and it said that we could keep everything, it seemed like the perfect opportunity. While only one of the five Methodist churches in Council Bluffs disaffiliated from United Methodist, more than 7,500 have done so nationwide since 2019, and Feinhold thinks it would have been more if not for the financial component. There have been a number of churches that have disaffiliated, but there's a number of churches that couldn't afford to disaffiliate because they didn't make it cheap, he said. Disaffiliation is not without its financial obligations. Paragraph 2553 states that in order to break away from the church, congregations are required to pay any unpaid apportionments for the 12 months prior to disaffiliation, as well as an additional 12 months worth. The church is also required to pay into the conference's unfunded pension plan. The Fifth Avenue Community Church requested that their financial obligation not be published. To give some context, though, the Sioux City Journal provided the numbers in July for what was Wesley United Methodist Church when that congregation voted to disaffiliate. The appointment amount for Wesley for the prior year, as calculated by the conference, totaled $43,648, while its share of the unfunded pension fund totaled $71,485. Any unpaid loans and all costs associated with the transfer of any asset, such as legal fees, must also be paid by the church. Another stipulation for disaffiliation is that congregations cannot use United Methodist or the church's insignia and other intellectual property. At Fifth Avenue, that meant a July Facebook post stating that the page's name would be changing from Fifth Avenue United Methodist Church to Fifth Avenue Community Church, and a number of signs and images had to be taken down. This is not the first instance of internal disagreement at Fifth Avenue, Newman recalled that in the 1970s, an associate pastor and a group of parishioners decided that they didn't want to pay apportionments to the state conference, and they broke away from Fifth Avenue to start their own independent church. It was in the late 70s, and it was probably half of the congregation that went, don't you think, Feinhold asked, and they started a new church, and that church is no longer around. Prior to half the congregants leaving to form a new church, Fifth Avenue had an average weekly attendance of more than 200, Newman said. We had over 100 in Sunday school classes with a few adult Sunday school classes, he said. 
We were involved in most anything that happened in the community, Council Bluffs, or Omaha as far as the Christian community. When it came time for Fifth Avenue Congregation to hold a vote on whether to disaffiliate from United Methodist, the result wasn't close. The resolution vote was like 25 to 1, Newman said. After the vote was held, Wymore sent letters to everyone on the church's membership list, just under 100 people, to ask whether they wanted to stay with Fifth Avenue now that it was breaking away from United Methodist. I want to say three people decided they wanted to stay with United Methodist, Wymore said. None of those three have attended this church in years. About ten told the church to remove them from their list. Those are all people that had not stepped foot in this church in years, Wymore said. So we went from having about 100 people on the membership list down to 50. Feinhold said that some of the older members of Fifth Avenue who have been Methodists for their entire lives have had a more, more difficult time coming to terms that they are no longer members of a Methodist church. I said, well, have you changed your beliefs about anything? I haven't changed my beliefs. My beliefs are the same. There's just, I can't say that we're Methodist, Feinhold said. For Wymore, it boils down to what she believes, not necessarily the building she worships in. I think it goes down to the fact that I went to Fifth Avenue United Methodist Church, but my belief of my commitment is to God, she said. I just happen to worship in this building. Feinhold said that they have no intention of bad-mouthing the United Methodist Church. He said, they're just making changes the last few years that are just more than what we can deal with. He likened it to joining a fraternal organization and immediately trying to change how it operates. I joined the group. I tried to become part of the group. And if they're doing something I don't agree with, then I have to leave, Feinhold said. Well, that's where I feel we were at with this. We were part of the Methodist Church. We all went through the rules to become members of the United Methodist Church. But the changes have gotten to the point where we just can't be part of it now. Next is an article entitled, Council to Pick Mayor. It's written by Tom Rauer of the Nonpareil. Glenwood is expected to name a new mayor later this month. The city is accepting applications until noon on December the 27th for that currently vacant position, City Administrator Amber Farnan told the Nonpareil. City Council members will then interview the applicants the remainder of that day and the next before announcing their appointment on December the 29th, she said. The city is seeking to replace Ron Cohn, who resigned as mayor in late November, citing personal reasons. After the council accepted his resignation, it voted to seek his replacement through the appointment process instead of holding a special election. The council set the timeline at a meeting last week. Under Iowa law, a council has up to 60 days to fill a vacancy by appointment. However, the Glenwood Council wants to have a mayor in place by the first meeting in January when next year's budget process gets started, Farnan said. The council decided against a special election for concern about a lack of candidates, she said. Ron is the only one who ran for mayor in the last three elections, Farnan said. We weren't sure how much interest we would have in a special election. The council felt an appointment made the most sense. Besides that, elections cost money, and the November election was the only one in the city's budget. Iowa law, however, does allow voters in the city the right to petition for a special election by gathering the required number of signatures based on voter turnout in the last election. 
In this case, a petition would need at least 104 signatures, which is 15% of the local voter turnout in the November election, Farnan said. The petition would also have to be filed with the city within 14 days of the appointment. The council will announce its appointment at a special meeting on Friday, December the 29th at 5.30 p.m. at Glenwood City Hall. The appointment will become effective immediately and will expire December 31st, 2025. Farnan said there were a handful of people who have already applied for the position. Those interested are to email a cover letter and, re- cover letter and resume to cityclerk at cityofglenwood.org. We need those by noon on Wednesday, December 27th, Farnan said. Meanwhile, she praised the many activities undertaken by Cohn, who was first elected to mayor in 2017. This included his interest in the appearance of City Hall with the addition of brick planters outside the entrance. He was always very busy, Farnan said. Police look for man in fatal attack. This is written by Kevin Cole of the Omaha World Herald. A man died Sunday night at an Omaha hospital following a shooting in Council Bluffs. Police officers called to a residence near Harrison Street and Canesville Boulevard about 6.40 p.m. located Gary Frederick, age 62, suffering from a gunshot wound. A statement from the Council Bluffs Police Department said Frederick was taken to the Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha where he died. Witnesses reported seeing Frederick arrive at the scene shortly before a disturbance began. Witnesses alleged that Mensa Alloway, age 29, produced a gun and fired several shots at Frederick, striking him an unknown amount of times. Alloway, an Omaha resident, allegedly fled the scene. Police are asking anyone with information about his whereabouts to call area code 712-328-4765 or Crime Stoppers at 712-328-7867. Volunteers purchase Christmas gifts for 150. This is by Tim Rauer of the Nonpareil. A group of volunteers spent Saturday buying gifts at a local Walmart to help brighten Christmas for children who might otherwise not receive a gift. This is an opportunity to add a little sunshine to these kids, said businessman Jeff Ballinger. Christmas is a wonderful time and we want to make sure there is something under the tree for them. Through phone calling and word of mouth, nearly $15,000 was raised, enough to buy gifts for 150 children, Ballinger said. The Lakin Foundation and anonymous donors provided the funds, he said. Local volunteers wrapped the presents for the kids who were recommended by folks in the community, he said. A lot of needy kids assume they won't get presents under the tree, he said. The volunteers took home the gifts for wrapping to surprise the children this week, Ballinger said. This effort began about three years ago when Ballinger got together with Teresa McBride, Lisa Dunning, and Mike Alford to ensure holiday fundraising events in the community continued. They contacted people they knew who in turn contacted others and so forth. We would like this to become an annual event, Ballinger said. We will be working for a higher amount next year. New Visions Homeless Services Brings Families Holiday Spirit New Visions Homeless Services hosts its 28th annual community-wide holiday celebration on Saturday at the Iowa Sportsplex. Hundreds of volunteers gave out new Christmas gifts, holiday meal boxes, gifts from Santa, books, diapers, and much more. The Grassroots Events is centered on making sure children and adults have a Merry Christmas, according to a news release. 
New Visions, along with local community sponsors, donors, and volunteers, presented gifts to more than 600 local families, along with several hundred more being served from a waitlist, Veterans Campus, and at the shelter. In addition to gifts, Saturday's event provided basic needs, community resources, and a network of support for individuals and families who register for the event. One of my favorite parts of the program this year was that there was a professional photographer that took family portraits and emailed them to families for free. Brandy Waller, New Visions CEO and president, told the non-parel, so many families stayed that stayed they never had a professional family portrait before. Community opportunities to participate the event included sponsorship levels from $1,000 to $10,000, volunteer activities, toy drives, and in-kind donations. The community holiday celebration is part of NVHS's prevention program that assists families with holiday gifts, food, diapers, and winter clothing so that they can continue to direct their resources towards housing and other crucial budget needs. In some state news under the Digest heading, Santa saves nativity scene from removal over constitutional concerns. A Santa figure saved an Iowa Fire Department's nativity scene from being shut down following complaints that the display might violate the U.S. Constitution. The display in the central Iowa city of Toledo was moved to a retired firefighter's nearby lawn last week after an atheist group raised concerns that the Christian depiction at the public fire station violated the First Amendment's prohibition on government agencies favoring one religion over others, Cedar Rapids station KCRG-TV reported Friday. The U.S. Supreme Court in 1984 ruled that manger scenes are allowed on government property depending on the context of the displays during the Christmas season and whether they have a secular purpose. During a city council meeting, fans of the 15-year-long nativity tradition at the Toledo Fire Department pitched adding a Santa figure to keep the display on public ground. The city confirmed that the nativity scene plus Santa is backup at the station. Eastern Iowa Atheists founder Justin Scott said he's satisfied. I don't believe there's any ill intent by the city of Toledo, Scott told Des Moines station KCCI-TV. I think it was just something that was nice. It was a nice gesture by a nice family. They put it up and nobody bothered to notice that it was actually a constitutional violation. Man sentenced for drag racing wreck that killed a young boy. An Iowa man was sentenced to 16 years in prison for a drag racing crash that killed a four-year-old boy. A jury in November found 48-year-old Keith Eric Jones of Des Moines guilty of homicide by vehicle, operating under the influence, reckless driving, and knowingly leaving the scene of an accident resulting in death. Another man, Robert Lee Miller III, was previously sentenced to 30 years in prison for his role in the December 13, 2022 wreck that killed four-year-old Marcos Faguada and injured his aunt, Myra de Catalan. Prosecutors said Jones and Miller were drinking at a bar. When they left, they began racing on a four-lane road. Authorities said Miller's car reached a speed of 108 miles per hour before crossing over a median and striking Decatalan's vehicle. Marcos and Decatalan's eight-year-old son were passengers. Marcos died at a hospital. At Jones's sentencing, Marcos's mother said he loved to dance, tell jokes, and wear superhero costumes. 
As a mother, my heart is broken, and I am forever marked because you took my son away from me, Elva Galvin told Jones. I am not the happy person that I used to be. DeSantis to assist man charged with beheading satanic statue. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis says he will support the legal defense of a Mississippi man charged with vandalizing the satanic temple's display inside the Iowa State Capitol building. DeSantis posted on social media platform X, formerly Twitter, Satan has no place in our society and should not be recognized as a religion by the federal government. I'll chip in to contribute to this Veterans Legal Defense Fund. Good prevails over evil. That's the American spirit. A crowdfunding campaign was launched for the Mississippi former congressional candidate charged with fourth-degree criminal mischief. The Satanic Temple is a non-theistic real religious organization. It does not believe in or worship Satan, but uses satanic imagery to promote skepticism and curiosity and as a symbol representing the eternal rebel against arbitrary authority and social norms, according to its website. Next is an article entitled, Tax Revenue to Stay Flat. Panel says, sales tax helps offset income tax cuts in next fiscal year projection. This is written by Aaron Murphy of the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau. State tax revenue that fuels Iowa's budget essentially will remain flat in the next fiscal year, according to the latest estimates from the panel that projects state revenues. While recently enacted state income tax cuts are reducing their slice of the state budget pie, those reductions have been mostly offset by continued growth in sales tax revenue, according to the projections. The latest estimates, published Wednesday by the three-member Revenue Estimating Conference during its quarterly meeting, will guide legislators as they craft the next state budget when they return for the 2024 legislative session. The next state budget year begins July 1st. The panel projected that revenue will essentially be flat in the next budget year. It projected total current receipts in the current budget year, fiscal 2024, will be $11.036 billion. And in the next budget year, fiscal 2025, revenue will be $11.041 billion. State income tax revenue is dropping as a result of tax cuts. The state collected nearly $5.8 billion in state income tax revenue in the 2022 budget year and is projected to collect just less than $5 billion in the 2025 state budget year, a decline of nearly $820 million. However, Iowa sales tax revenue continues to grow. The state collected more than $3.8 billion in state sales tax revenue in the 2022 budget year and is projected to collect $4.3 billion in the 2025 state budget year, an increase of $470 million. While income taxes and sales taxes account for the largest share of the projections, other smaller revenue streams are also included. Craig Paulson, the director of the Iowa Department of Management, who represents the governor's office on the Revenue Estimating Conference, said that indicates to him there is organic growth in Iowa's economy. I think it just means Iowans are working and they're making money and they're spending money, Paulson told reporters. They're doing the things Iowans do. And so that generates revenue into the state. Clearly, those numbers are exceeding what the tax cuts reduced it by. The panel otherwise painted a rosy picture of the state's economy. It seems like Iowa's continued to be more stable than just about any place else I've seen. 
So all's good, said David Underwood, the public representative on the panel. The three-member revenue estimating conference is comprised of representatives of the governor's office, the nonpartisan legislative services agency that analyzes the state finances and the public. Overall, state tax revenue dipped slightly for the first time in a decade. In the current state budget year, that dip was driven largely by the state income tax cuts. State income tax revenue likely will continue to decline as the tax cuts continue to be gradually phased in. Governor Kim Reynolds and the Republican-majority Iowa legislature in 2022 overhauled state income tax rates, establishing a series of annual reductions to ultimately reach a 3.9% rate for most state income taxpayers, effective in the tax year 2026. The law also eliminated the state tax on retirement income and established a measure to reduce state business tax rates if the revenue reaches certain benchmarks. Reynolds and State House Republicans are mulling an acceleration of those individual income tax cuts and perhaps a process of eliminating the state income tax altogether. Now we'll turn to the opinion page and read an opinion piece entitled, Worried About the Dentist? Drill Down for a Distraction. It's written by Jerry Davich, who writes for the Times of Northwest Indiana and can be reached at jerry.davich, D-A-V-I-C-H, at nwi.com. Which do you fear most, public speaking or a dental appointment? It's a tough choice to swallow, isn't it? I've done both more times than I can count, and I still get anxiety beforehand. The worst part is the waiting that leads up to it. Our mind plays tricks with us with the conspiracy of time. I would do much better if I was yanked off the street and dragged onto a stage in front of 200 people to give a one-hour presentation on, say, doorknobs, or kidnapped by a gang of dental hygienists thrown into a dentist's chair and tied down by dental floss. There would be no pre-visit anxiety. But when you tell me that my next appointment is on a certain date, guess which date becomes one of my least favorite dates of the year? I now dread that date. It's like circling a date on the calendar and writing in big, bold letters. Uh Uh-oh. It's different with public speaking, which I usually agree to because the date is so far into the future I don't believe it will ever arrive. Last month I was asked, are you available to speak on March 4th? Sure, I replied. March 4th doesn't exist, I thought. It's like asking if I would like to schedule a dental appointment on Mars. Sure, I would casually reply. It doesn't exist. But then, what do you know, March 4th will arrive, and then I will arrive, clutching my baggage of anxiety. I'm not alone. Decades of studies have been done on dental fear. It can be more painful than the actual dental treatment. I visited my dentist last week. As the dental hygienist cleaned my teeth, I began writing this column in my head. Any distractions are welcome. Since my youth, I've had countless dental procedures done at different offices. I know the process like the back of my mouth. Settle into the chair, lean back, open my mouth, clench my hands together, and let my mind wander. The distraction of conversation is a dental tool you won't find on the hygienist's tray, but it's crucial for most fearful patients. How about today's weather? What are you doing later today? Do you have any holiday plans? Kudos to them for trying to ease patients' worries. I'd rather have a root canal than engage in polite chit-chat 
but the conversations I prefer are difficult at 30-second intervals with a suction tube in my mouth. Wordplay is one of my favorite things in the world, but I need my mouth to do it. Without verbal words, my facial expressions are as demonstrative as a bowl of oatmeal. At my recent dental appointment, the hygienist talked about an interesting subject that I have a personal history with, the role of step-parent in a blended family. I could give a public presentation on this topic, contrasting its challenges and rewards. I lived it. I know it. I learned so much from it. But I wasn't able to elaborate my insights as much as I would have liked. I felt I spoke too much as it was, causing the hygienist to take a break from my cleaning. My inner dialogue screamed at me, shut up. I should know better. I have an inside source about this sensitive subject. My wife is a dental hygienist. I've heard stories about patients who never shut up, or who never talk, or never brush their teeth, or they think flossing is a dance move. Lying about brushing our teeth is our national pastime. Some patients don't think twice about devouring a package of Oreo cookies on their way to visit a dentist. Who are these barbarians? Other patients blame hygienists for taking too much time to clean their teeth, though they haven't brushed their teeth since the Trump administration. I would have no patience for most patients. I've had multiple crowns, root canals, fillings, and numbing shots. I've drooled on myself and sounded like a drunken toddler. I once had a very painful condition called dry socket for days, but I didn't tell my dentist. I didn't want to come across as a whiny or wussy patient. Why didn't you call my office, my former dentist asked angrily. I didn't have the nerve to tell him the truth. I was scared the treatment might hurt. This is the power of irrational fear. It hurts more than what we actually fear. And again, that was written by Jerry Davich, who writes for the Times of Northwest Indiana. You are listening to the Daily Daily Nonpareil on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Today's second opinion piece is another view from the Boston Herald, and it's entitled, Trustees Must Fire Harvard's President Gay. Ivy League school, risking it all over semantics, should shun anyone who advocates genocide. Harvard President Claudine Gay should have been fired on December the 6th, a day after her insulting testimony before a congressional committee. That she's still on the Cambridge campus is all you need to know about Harvard University these days. There's a huge difference between free speech and hate speech. What's playing out there since the horrific October 7th Hamas terrorist attack on Israel is the latter. The Harvard Corporation and the Board of Overseers have waited too long to act. Like it or not, the region's reputation rides on our institutions, and Harvard is embarrassing all of us. MIT is a close second. Lawrence Summers, President Emeritus at Harvard, posted on a social media feed that trustees with the ultimate fiduciary responsibility have been AWOL. He added alumni angry at Harvard's abhorrent response to anti-Semitism on campus have been let down by the ruling governors. The former Secretary of Treasury speaks the truth. Pandering to students' groups has been in the college playbook for more than a decade. That's why the trustees play it safe. The kids pay the insane tuitions, or their parents do, and hence they wield the power. 
the, that equation is warped. Students graduate with crushing debt and a worldview that doesn't jibe with reality on the streets. The deans, provosts, and professors are more concerned about their jobs than preparing young minds for the workforce. What will a degree from Harvard mean beginning with the class of 2024? Insensitivity comes to mind. Privilege, snobbishness, arrogance, and anti-Semitism are now also on the list. This is not what great universities aspire to be. Harvard is risking it all over semantics. In today's society, anyone who advocates genocide in any form should be shunned and, yes, expelled. That President Gay would not just speak from the heart and promise that any student found uttering hate would be kicked out of college will be her downfall. So what's the delay? The trustees should announce now that President Gay is gone and will never return to Harvard. Hostages are still being held, or dead, by Hamas terrorists. Gaza is in ruins because killers violated a truce without a conscience. President Gay attempted to rationalize it all to a congressional committee that, thankfully, wasn't biting. Legalese has no place when women and children are being tortured. Gay has since apologized for her remarks, but it should be too late. It takes courage to lead, and President Gay and the Harvard trustees are failing us all. Where there is no vision, there is no hope, wrote George Washington Carver. It just fits what's going on here. Harvard is floundering. It's doing so while violating its own promise. The mission of Harvard College is to educate the citizens and citizen leaders for our society, the university states, except when it's not easy to do, sadly, it appears. Our final opinion piece is entitled, Why Ukraine Can Beat Russia and Why That Matters to America. It's written by Trudy Rubin, who is a columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer and can be reached at trubin, R-U-B-I-N, at phillynews.com. One year ago, President Ukra Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky addressed a joint session of Congress. Lawmakers hailed him as a hero defender of democracy against an aggressive Russia whose leader threatened Europe and the United States. GOP legislators humiliated Zelensky last week. He had traveled to Washington to urge Republicans to pass a vital military aid package for his country. They stiffed him. The same Republicans who cheered Zelensky last December are now fast walking in the U.S. toward the greatest self-inflicted military debacle of the post-World War II era. They are ready to hand Vladimir Putin a victory. Goodbye, U.S. global leadership. Onward, more military and political challenges to democracies, including ours. It's past time for President Joe Biden to lay, lay out clearly why Ukraine can still win and why that matters to Americans. Here are five points that urgently need to be clarified. Not defeated. The U.S. must ignore defeatist claims that Ukraine has already lost the war because its counteroffensive has stalled. They are untrue. A major reason the Ukrainian counteroffensive stalled was the slow delivery of key weapons systems by Washington and NATO nations, which gave Russia time to build fearsome defenses. The West also failed to provide Ukraine with planes so its troops lack air cover to advance. Ukraine has revised its strategy to stress new technologies, especially drones. It now focuses on firing behind enemy lines to destroy Russian headquarters and depots 
and has had amazing success using homemade sea drones to push back Russian ships in the Black Sea. But for the new strategy to prosper, it needs F-16s and long-range ATACMS missiles, which the Pentagon is still not delivering. With continued aid and the right weapons system, Ukraine could still score a breakthrough next year. Say no to negotiations. Americans must also ignore the ignorant calls for Ukraine to negotiate now. They disregard reality and feed Putin's dreams of victory. According to Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Tsarkarova, peace requires an end to Western military support, acceptance of Russia's permanent occupation of at least 20% of Ukraine, demilitarization of the country, and denazification, which means overthrow of the Ukrainian government and imposition of Russian stooges. Putin has made publicly clear he wants the total subjugation of Ukraine. Listen to Putin. If you want to hear what Putin and state-controlled media are saying, now that they think the GOP and a future Donald Trump presidency will finalize their victory, follow Julia Davis on X. The Daily Beast columnist collects video of Russia's leading talk show hosts. Currently, they are gloating about how the GOP's aid cut is undermining the faith of Americans' allies in U.S. leadership and how Trump's actions have helped Russia. An economic bargain. Contrary to GOP claims, U.S. aid to Ukraine is not a money pit. The cost of that aid is slightly more than 3% of the Pentagon budget, yet Ukrainians have gutted much of the current Russian army and its weapons supply. And Ukrainian soldiers are doing all the fighting. Meanwhile, two-thirds of the military aid we send to Kiev goes straight to the Pentagon to finance new weapons systems while they send the old stuff, often from unused stockpiles, to Ukraine. Furthermore, Ukraine's technological innovations are providing valuable lessons to our own military. A victory for America. Biden must tell the public why a victory for Ukraine is a victory for the United States, while a win for Putin is a debacle. If Putin triumphs, it will convince allies and enemies that America has abandoned any pretense of global leadership. It would undercut any pretense that we support fellow democracies. Ukrainians are shedding their blood for the values America used to hold dear before one of our major parties chose to embrace dictators. Shame on us and shame on our country if we abandon them now. And again, this was written by Trudy Rubin, who is a columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Continuing with some more state news, alleged tree thief claims protection. This is written by Jared Strong of the Iowa Capitol Dispatch. An 800-year-old English charter that was hugely consequential for establishing rights of people to use public lands also protects a rural Rolf man accused of illegally cutting down and stealing dozens of trees from a wildlife management area in northwest Iowa, the man's attorney argues. That is among several reasons why Jason Levant Ferguson, age 41, wants a judge to reverse a jury's verdict last month that he is guilty of 51 charges for taking the trees without permission from public property in Pocahontas County. His attorney, Kevin Fors of Harcourt, argues that the provisions of the Charter of the Forest, issued in the year 1217 by King Henry III, were transferred by common law to the United States when it declared independence from England, 
according to documents Fors filed in State District Court. Fors points to a paragraph in the charter that says, Every free man may adjust his own wood within our forest at his pleasure, and shall take his pawnage. When we have the need to depend upon these rights, they need to be there for our protection, or our society will not endure, and we will spiral into authoritarianism, much the same as happened in the time before the Charter of the Forest, Fors wrote. Ferguson allegedly took more than 100 trees from the Stoddard Wildlife Management Area over the course of more than a year and planned to use the lumber to build a house, according to court records. One of the trees was a very old burr oak that was six feet in diameter at its base. The Iowa Capitol Dispatch published a news article several days before Ferguson's trial about timber thefts in the state that, in part, detailed the accusations against him. It was republished by several newspapers. This article was picked up by other sources and was so dominant that it became an issue at a political rally of presidential politicians in Pocahontas during the trial, Fors wrote. He did not elaborate. The Iowa Department of Natural Resources, which was Iowa Capital Dispatch's primary source of information about the timber thefts, provided that information at a reporter's request and had no influence over the article. Potential jurors were asked whether they had seen news coverage of the allegations against Ferguson. Next, Iowa delegation renew push for year-round E15. This is written by Caleb McCullough of the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Members of Iowa's congressional delegation are renewing their push for federal officials to allow the sale of E15 in Iowa year-round. U.S. Senators Chuck Grassley and Joni Ernst, along with Representatives Randy Feenstra, Marionette Miller-Meeks, and Ashley Hinson, signed onto a bipartisan letter on Thursday urging Biden administration officials to finalize a rule that would allow the sale of E-15, gasoline blended with 15% ethanol, during the summer months in some Midwestern states. It's the latest beat in a battle stretching over a year from several Midwestern states to make the year-round sale of the fuel permanent. Federal rules limit the sale of E-15 between June 1st and September 15th because of concerns that it contributes to smog. In a letter from 22 members of Congress, the lawmakers said the approval would provide certainty to refiners and retailers who are preparing for the summer 2024 driving season. In April 2022, eight Midwestern governors, including Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, made a request under the Clean Air Act to make the year-round sale of E-15 permanent. Federal regulators approved waivers in 2022 and 2023 allowing the sale of the fuel in the summer months, citing the high cost of gasoline during that time spurred by supply chain issues and the war in Ukraine. The EPA released a proposed rulemaking in March of this year that would have made the summer sale of E-15 permanent starting in April 2024. But after final implementation of the rule was delayed, Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd sued the EPA in August, accusing the agency of illegally delaying its rulemaking process. The Clean Air Act requires the agency to finalize a rule requested by governors within 90 days of the request. The EPA said in a court filing this week it plans to implement the final rule by March 2024, but lawyers for Iowa and Nebraska 
asked the court to reject that plan and force the agency to finalize the rule sooner. Iowa leads the nation in ethanol production, using more than half of the corn grown in the state to produce as much as 4.5 billion gallons a year. Haley slams DeSantis for stumping in Iowa with Massey. This is written by Thomas Beaumont of the Associated Press. Nikki Haley denounced Republican presidential rival Ron DeSantis in Iowa Sunday for campaigning in the state with Kentucky Representative Thomas Massey, the lone House Republican who voted last week against a GOP resolution condemning anti-Semitism on university campuses. You can't be pro-Israel and bring the most anti-Israel Republican into this state who voted against fighting anti-Semitism on college campuses, Haley said, and that's who we brought to your state. Coming at the end of a campaign event at a suburban Des Moines bar and grill, Haley's criticism of DeSantis for campaigning with Massey on Saturday marks the increased pressure for the two to emerge from Iowa as the stronger alternative to former President Donald Trump. Trump is the heavy favorite to win Iowa's leadoff caucuses on January 15th. The margin of victory is very important. It's just very important, Trump told an audience last week in Coralville. DeSantis and Haley have increasingly sparred publicly, as they have during debates, while ads by groups supporting each have sought to stall the other's movement in Iowa with less than a month until the caucuses. DeSantis campaigned in Iowa with Massey when the two headlined a town hall-style event geared toward gun rights policy in Johnston. Massey has previously critiqued anti-Semitism-related legislation as restricting free speech, voting against related GOP-sponsored resolutions since the Israel-Hamas war began. Support for Israel is a top priority for most Republicans, especially evangelical Christians, who form an influential bloc in the Iowa GOP, and many of whom believe Jews are God's chosen people and that Israel is their rightful homeland. DeSantis has called for U.S. support of Israel. His campaign dismissed the Massey campaigning criticism. Haley has called on Israel to finish them, referring to Hamas, the group responsible for the October 7th attack. Now it's time to turn to sports, and I'll start with an article from the Mac Border Battle Shootout, and it's entitled, Lewis Central's OT Win Highlights Day 3. It's written by Pete Burtnett of the Nonpareil. The 18th annual MAC Border Battle Shootout concluded Saturday. Lewis Central boys earned an overtime win over Gretna East in the best game of the day. Lewis Central 60, Gretna East 57 in overtime. We just have a lot of guys that believe in each other and they know certain nights, certain guys, maybe it's not your night, and we're pretty deep where we have a lot of guys that can come in and contribute, Titans head coach Ricky Torres said. You know, what I'm overall proud of is just how relentless they were on the defensive end. We fixed some things up, and I think in the second half was a lot better. The early stages of the game were competitive, the lead swinging back and forth a few times. But the Griffins had a string of four straight threes to turn a two-point deficit into a ten-point lead when the Titans called timeout with 6-11 left in the second quarter. The Titans, however, stayed in striking range after the timeout, and while the Griffins often had an answer, trailed by just six at halftime. Jackson Larson led the Titans with 12 points off the bench, while Taylor Hovey had 16 for the Griffins. And after the break, LC hit back even harder 
outscoring Gretna East by 10 points in the quarter as Larson drained a pair of threes and Nash Paulson added seven in the quarter. Normally, we'd depend on our defense, and it wasn't there in the first half, Larson said. We really got into it. They really got into us in the second half. He really stepped up in the defensive end. Flares and back screens hurt the Titans in the first half, but better communication fixed the issue. We just weren't talking defensively, Larson said. You know, we weren't physical enough getting through. And then second half, they told us we needed to talk and get more physical. So we started switching and got it done. We just went back to the basics of our fundamentals of defense and not so much switching, but just fighting through screens and being very physical, Torres added. Going into the fourth, the Titans led 52-48 to and never trailed the rest of the way, though there were two ties and plenty of drama, albeit little scoring. Connor Levinson drilled a three to cut the Titans' lead to one, but a, came, a Camden cross free throw made it 53-51. Each time LC went up by two on a pair of Nash Paulson free throws and a two by Chris Curtis White, Gretna East responded with two more to tie. That brought the game to 57 all with under a minute to play. Both teams had chances to win but couldn't get close shots to fall, and after a white runner missed, the game went to overtime. Ultimately, a cross free throw and two more by Parker Stressman were enough as missed chances went by for the Griffins and LC held on for a 60-57 win in the always fun border battle. It's always fun state versus state and they're a good young ball club and they're going to be really, really solid and I'm glad we're playing now. Let's just say that. But it brings out people in the community and a lot of people take pride in it. Larson's 18 off the bench, second to Nash Paulson's 19, were a spark for the Titans. Sometimes I got to do it, sometimes the starters got it, but today I needed to bring a little spark off the bench, coach said, so I got it done, and thankfully we won, and it was a team win, Larson said. A gym rat, according to Torres, Larson is a player that accepts his role but makes Torres's job much more challenging. That's probably one thing that is a true testament to Jack is how he accepted that role, the LC head coach said. And I told him, you know, hey, you might be the best sixth man in the league right now, and you got to own that role. And you know, he's making my job tough because now it's all of a sudden it's like decisions have to be made. In other games, Nottaway Valley 70, 51, excuse me, Underwood 46, girls, Underwood 75, Red Oak 58, that's a boys game. Omaha Central 59, Abraham Lincoln 37, girls. And Omaha Central 74, Abraham Lincoln 65, for the boys. Gretna East 45, Lewis Central 20, girls. Glenwood 41, Plattsmouth 26, girls game. Plattsmouth 50, Glenwood 48, in the boys game. In other high school basketball action, boys basketball, Lynx keep composure to pull away from Yellow Jackets. This is written by Austin Heinen. The Abraham Lincoln Lynx used an 18-2 run in the third quarter to pull away from Thomas Jefferson at AL Fieldhouse on Friday night for an 84-64 win in the first of two meetings between the president schools this season. The Lynx expected a dogfight this game against their crosstown rival, but coach Jason Isaacson was very pleased with how his team rebounded to help control the tempo of this game. 
We knew going into this that TJ is a really good team, Link's coach Jason Isaacson said. You can't watch what they've done through the first seven games before this one and not think that this game wasn't going to be a dogfight. We challenged our guys for 32 minutes, and for the first 20 or so, it was a very even game, and both sides were keeping up with each other. But we again challenged our guys, and in that last quarter, our guys proved to be the tougher team and made some key plays to pull away from them by guarding well on defense and rebounding. Our guys did a good job executing that plan. The game started as advertised as both teams traded early leads. The lead changed four times within the first 10 minutes. It wasn't until the final 10 seconds of the first half that the Lynx separated themselves from the Yellow Jackets with a 10-0 run as a personal four and technical foul allowed Cole Arnold to sink four straight free throws and Creighton Bracker sank a tip shot at the buzzer to give the Lynx a six-point lead at the break. We just had to keep pushing our pace, Arnold said. We just focus on running our offense and get some transition baskets too because that's when we're at our best. I keep getting to the rim, and even if I got fouled, I knew I just had to make the free throws and we'd be good. We knew that we had just had to keep pushing the ball, Bracker said. They don't play as many guys as us, so we felt like we could outplay them and pull away as they got tired. We just stuck to our game. In the end, this game isn't about us, it's about the team. We knew they were going to talk at us and rattle us up, but we just stuck to our game and it paid off. Bracker scored 23 points in the second quarter and 14 in the third to help spark the 18-2 run to pull away. However, a celebration in the first half led to a technical foul on the Lynx, allowing the Jackets to get two points right back after free throws. The Yellow Jackets slowly chipped away the Lynx lead and eventually took the lead 46-45, which created the eighth lead change of the game. However, the Lynx went on an 18-2 run to cap off the third quarter. The Yellow Jackets were unable to get their offense going again, allowing the Lynx to fend off the Jackets for the win. The win marks the 23rd consecutive win for the Lynx in the series. And in the girls' game, Lynx hot shooting scorches Yellow Jackets, also written by Austin Heinen of the Nonpareil. Abraham Lincoln had two big runs of 10-3 to start the game and 26-0 runs spanning through the end of the first quarter through most of the second quarter to pull away from Thomas Jefferson on Friday night at AL Fieldhouse to a 73-33 win. I thought that we played at a very high level, Lynx coach Chad Shaw said. We were looking for teammates and sharing the ball really well. A lot of people scored and contributed tonight, which is very encouraging to see heading close to the break. The Lynx started the game with a 10-3 run before the Yellow Jackets scored the next four of six points, bringing the score to 12-7 with just a couple minutes left in the first quarter. The Lynx then hit the gas, finished the quarter with a 10-0 run, and scored the first 16 for a 26-0 total run that lasted until the final minute of the second quarter to take control. The teams kept pace with each other in the third, but the Lynx had one more run in a 14-0 run that helped the Lynx pull away further and close out the game. We've had some highs and lows with our shots like this through the years, Presley Garris said. We knew this was a good game, work on getting our teammates involved too, and I think we did exactly what we wanted there. Our offense was really solid, and so was our defense, Lexi Pierce said. We wanted to get after them from the start, and our defense turned into offense as the game went on. 
We pulled away from them more and more as the game went on, and it was nice to get everyone in the game and see so many of us score tonight. Out of nine total scorers for the Lynx, Lexi Pierce led the Lynx with 20 points, and Presley Giris added 18 for the Lynx in the win. Grace Strong led TJ with 10. The win marks the 12th straight win for the Lynx in the series over the Yellow Jackets, but these teams will meet again on January 30th, where they will host the game at TJ Activity Center. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. <laughs>